Welcome to Connected, a podcast with Jess. That's me. Connections are the secret to a whole life. Recognizing the connections between us and within us, mind, body, and soul, reveals the fullest potential of our humanity. Join me as I discover what connects us to each other and to ourselves. Your mind, body, and soul are not meant to live disconnected from each other. Putting all the beautiful parts of you into one breathtakingly whole experience is what you deserve. As a life coach, I work to support your story. Together, we can set free the story of you. I bring guests onto my show so that you can hear powerful stories of other women all across the world. I want you to see how profoundly important living and telling stories is. I understand what it feels like to live under expectations and programming that are not aligned with who you are. I learned to write my own story in my year of Jess, and I want to guide you as you write the story of you. Your beauty, power, and value are already in there, in you. It's time. Time to take your pen back and write the story of you. It begins today. Go to my website, jessicatravis.com backslash free journal guide. I've created a five-day journal guide free to you. Five days, five emails, one new story of you. After subscribing, I'm going to send you an email with a link to my private Facebook group called Get Connected. I'm creating a community for you to embrace and fall in love with the story of you. Okay, so my guest today is somebody I have known my entire life Um, from the very beginning. (laughs) I get the pleasure of interviewing today my own mom, and uh, my mom's name is Debbie. Um, On this podcast, I will be calling her mom, (laughs) and um, so I... uh, I think um, she has many fascinating chapters in the story of her life, and we're going to kind of talk about one specifically um, that I know has impacted and changed her life immensely. Um, So as I always do, I'm going to start off by asking my mom, who are you? Oh, well, you already know my name. It's Debbie. Debbie Massey is my name. Um, I'm so many things, it's hard to pinpoint it. Um, Probably the first highlight of my life is being a mother. And (laughs) maybe the second is um, later in life becoming or studying to be a hospice nurse and working in that field. So I would call myself a retired hospice nurse. Okay. Um, I would have thought that you said your favorite role is being a grandmother. 
Because, oh, wait, yes. Well, that goes in with mothering. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you are probably one of the best grandmas I know. I had mm. a best grandma too, and my girls are incredibly blessed to have a best grandma. And um, right now I have a best great-grandson. So. Yes. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think uh, something that is an interesting fact about us is that after I was born, we had four generations of women. Um, a photograph was actually taken. Mm-hmm. I don't know where it resides. Um, gotta find it. Yeah, but it was me, you, your mom, and no, it was five generations. Your mom, her mom, and then and my great grandma. Right. So there were five of us in this picture. Mm-hmm. When I got married, there were still four generations of women um, alive. It wasn't long after I was married that um, my great-grandmother, we called her Grandma Sandy, um, passed away. So she never met any of uh, your grandkids. But um, I felt, it felt like normal life to me to have so many um family members in my life growing up, but I realize now as I raise my own kids that that's not necessarily a privilege that everyone has. Um, my my girls were both alive to know my grandmother, so they did understand that, that generation of me, you, and uh, granny, but um, it wasn't for a very long time when grandma passed. It was um, it was a sh- short period of time the girls had, but they have very strong memories where I had my entire life with great grandparents. Yes. Like, it was, it was, a, a. I just consider it such a privilege to know. We had to give them, women. we had to give everyone special names because there were too many grandmas with the yeah. same last name and right. it was crazy. And you became grandma honey when I had daughters because, I, we already had a grandma Massey in the family and it was, and we spent a lot of time around everyone. So it was very confusing. So, um, you always called the girls honey. And I think there was a story around how you got your nickname, grandma honey. Was it with Kaylee, something Kaylee said? Well, she didn't know what to call me. She was referring to me, to you and she didn't know which last name of a honey to, or a grandma to use. And she says, the, the honey, the one that calls us honey. And that's oh, how it got to yeah. be. So, and, and then she so started it. She was the first yeah. and then never left. And then my grandma, who was the other grandma, Massey, um, always called the kids sugar. And so she became grandma sugar at that time. So it kind of switched when I had kids, everything kind of changed. And, mm-hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, so it's just, uh, I think it's really interesting how much um, history of our family that I grew up with, um, we were able to really tap into um, our uh, roots, you know, our fam- your side of the family was from Scotland, and our family gatherings often entailed <laughs> Our Scottish family members, which was always an entertaining experience. Yeah, language, accents, customs, food. It, 
Yeah. Lots of things to drink. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember that part as a kid, but no, you don't. Um, but I can I imagine. Do. <laughs> um, but what I do remember was that uh, you, it was very important to you to um, have us uh, understand our heritage um, in that regards. And um, uh, so we were involved in going to the Highland Games every year and eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, you uh, had me taking Highland dance lessons. My brother was learning to play the drums, the Scottish drums. And um, uh, both of us got to participate in the Highland Games because of those things. But it really helped us to dive in a bit to where we came from, which I is incredibly valuable to me, um, especially now in this time where immigration is such a hot topic. I just feel very... Um, excited to know that I I was exposed as a young child to where my family came from. I've never been to Scotland, unlike you and Jenna, but uh, my sister, but I, I uh, feel like I understand my family a bit and understand myself a bit because of that uh, experience. It's an interesting thing. When I did go to Scotland, which was what, two years ago or I can't remember. And yeah, yeah, it was about I was on a bus with a bunch of people. And when we crossed the border from England into Scotland, something overtook me and I just cried. It was like, you know, they say the winds and the bone or the bones in the wind. And it just it that's what it was. It was just uh, they were here. This is where they began. This was it was just so emotional to even cross into mm-hmm. Scotland and and then yeah. a blast just to be there. But yeah. One of the things you and I share a passion for is travel mm-hmm. um, and experiencing other cultures. Um, we have both uh, been to India. I went first and then I guess I talked about it enough. You had to go too, <laughs> which was part of your inspiration to becoming a nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, then, it, then you went to Africa mm-hmm. and Kenya. Uh, Kenya and later I went to Tanzania. So um, I have not been to Scotland or to Europe or anywhere over there, but we have, uh, I think if we both could have a career in travel, that's probably what we would do. <laughs> yeah. I would like a career in school and a career in travel. I know uh, we part ways that way. <laughs> we, we do. I, I'm okay not going back to school, but <laughs> um, I love learning, but I just, ugh, the structure of school. Um but um, one of the things that I was hoping that we could dive into a bit was the journey that you took as a nurse. Um, and for for you, if I can just paint a little bit of a picture, um, me growing up was uh, was a pretty, I felt like, a pretty traditional experience at the time, uh, the generation that I am, a pretty traditional experience of uh a dad that goes to work, a mom who stayed home and raised us. Um, you did a lot of different things within that time and things that you were involved in. But uh, I always knew you to be there, to, you know, to be at home. Um, and uh, in fact, we lived in the same house from I think I was second grade on until I got married. And um, so for me, there was this uh, real strong sense of uh, family uh, structure and in terms of roles and, you know, uh, the role specifically that you had in, 
uh, in our lives in terms of uh, providing the daily support. You were always there. I knew when I went to, when I was at school, I knew that if I called home, you were there. Like it was just this, this, uh, this thing that I experienced growing up. Um, for the most part, I was privileged to do that with my kids as well until they were older, um, late junior high and high school ages. And, um, and I absolutely love uh, that space of my life that I was able to do that. But later in life, uh, you and my dad parted ways. And um, it was a, a moment in your life where you had to figure out what your next was. And so I would love for you to talk about why nursing came to the table when it wasn't something you had ever done before. I'd seen you involved in teaching and um, uh, sewing and crafting and uh, child training classes and like all kinds of things, but this was not one of them. And so I think uh, watching you enter this career field was a little bit of where did this come from? So I think that's a good place for us to start is where did that come from for you? Well, I was asking the same question because I never really thought about blood and touching people in, you know, those ways of uh, healing and stuff. And um, actually, when I was faced with what am I going to do, the only thing I knew how to do, not the only thing, but most common things was sewing and that kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, I'll cut material at Joanne's Fabrics. And I thought, no, I, I want to do something different. So um, so the first thing that I did was I, I went into massage therapy. And I actually don't know why I did that either, because I remember signing up for the class, being ready to go. That would be a short-term, easy career. I, I But I did again, I hadn't thought about touching other people and, or people touching me all over. <laughs> just, <laughs> it was just kind of bizarre, but I ended up really liking it. It's like I fell in love with people when I was near them in that way. And so, um, so then I thought I, I need to do something else that ma makes some money because I didn't have, you would probably have to be married and have another partner holding the fort together while you build a clientele with mm. a with the massage therapy but um and I didn't have that so um my dad and I would just would look through the newspapers for things and he said well here's this thing you can work you can earn while you work or, or learn while you work what is it <laughs> I lost the words. <laughs> learn while I you can, I earn while I learn. That's it. Oh, and so, okay. <laughs> and so I was going to get paid to learn and it was to be um, a nurse's aide. And I did not know what it was. I didn't really even know how to apply for a job. So I thought, I just know they have to notice me. So there was a room full of people that showed up for that job. And um, when the lady walked in and told us what we would be doing, I just stood up and I said, I don't, I can't even remember what I said to her, but I had some question, but I stood up. So I was above the crowd <laughs> and that's the only thing I knew how to do to make a difference in getting the job. She called me in first 
And while I was in there, she told me I had the job, but not to tell anybody else. But then <laughs> I realized it was taking care of elderly people in nursing homes. But I didn't know that when I applied. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, I was going to make money while I learned to do this. And yeah. so one thing led to another. And um, I worked in several nursing homes. One of my favorites was an Alzheimer's unit, which it became probably a secondary passion to hospice. And then um, I had a patient in there in one of the nursing homes whose family um, or had put them on hospice. And so then I talked to one of the hospice nurses when she came in and asked her about it. And she said, um, go downtown Phoenix to the, this building and, and apply. I applied. I got hired immediately. And I'm still friends with the lady that hired me from Hospice of Arizona. And um, so I began doing that. And that was um, working in hospice units and going into homes. And then the guy, that one of the guys that ran one of the units said, if you get your LVN, I'll hire you here right away. No questions asked. So that's what I did. I just, I went to school and got my LBN. So, but tell us how old you were when you started this journey. I think I was 53 or yeah. 55. I can't quite remember. Um, and I don't remember that being something where, you, at least that you said out loud, oh, I can't do that because I'm this old or this no, age. Or, I thought I had lots of time. And I did. You but. did. But I'm saying that you just didn't let your age be one single speed bump in what no. you were headed down. No, and that never was a factor to me. I remember turning 60 and thinking, wow, what's this retiring at 65? I, I can go till I drop. This is wonderful. I soon changed that. <laughs> Not soon, but I did change that um, realization. But anyway, um, so... Um, I got my LVN, and then um, I was working at that hospice unit. And um, one of the things I'll insert here is that it it was really hard because I was coming off of um, a 30-year marriage, and there was just a lot of pain at that time, just a lot of mm-hmm. um, crying and all of that. And so um, one of the therapies for me was to write about my patients. So something would happen. Um, I would go home and I'd write about it, which, and I'd saved all those writings through the years. But um, so it became a therapy for me to um, work with these patients. So then I had a daughter who, two daughters who lived in California and in one of the towns was a hospice house. And every time I went there, I would say, oh, can we go visit the hospice house? It was just this luxurious place to let people live while they're dying. And um, I just fell in love with it. And so that was, so I moved from working in the hospice unit in Arizona, moved to California. Um, One daughter was in that same town and then you were in the town about two hours away. Mm -hmm. So I had all my grandchildren and stuff fairly close together. So, um, so yeah, that's, that, and that's how I got into nursing, but I owe, oh, and to apply to the hospice house, no one had ever applied from out of state before. And I had less than two years of LVN, so they don't usually, they didn't usually hire them. So I, um, 
I took national certification classes and IV certification and all of those so that, and then every time I took something, I wrote them a letter. And told them. I was so naive. I'm surprised they hired me. But then um, pretty soon they said, well, you come out and we interview. Mm-hmm. And that was probably my dream job. After the four or five years, I went into different aspects of hospice, Mm. which became my second favorite, which is to visit people in their homes. Mm. And absolutely love, I just, I would, my mother died um, just as I was taking my test for my LVN. And uh, so she was always near in my heart and she was my biggest cheerleader. And I would just be walking down the hall of the hospice house and look up and say, I did it, mom. Thank you. I did it. And yeah, so it was, well, and and to kind of take that story a little bit full circle, um, I know it's an emotional story for both of us, but while you were finishing your LVN, um, Granny uh, had had a surgery that she never woke up from. She went into a coma right. after that. And so they placed her in the hospice house that you were working at. Yeah. Oh, that and, just gave me chills. Yeah. And um, so you you had the support there of people that you actually knew. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we, we got to be with her during that time mm-hmm. and experience hospice as a family, um, mm-hmm. on the side of the, not the caregiver as, uh, or on the side of, uh, the patient, the patient. And, um, and then it wasn't long after that, that, um, once you were, um, you know, on, on the route of working in California, leaving Arizona, working from California, you actually took your dad with you into your home and cared for him um, on a hospice level with the help of local hospice um, in your home until he passed. So it was my hospice I was working for at that time as well. Yeah. Right. And so you have had um, this experience of hospice um, very close um, to you, not only as a nurse, but as a family ne- member of yeah. a patient in a hospice. Um, and I think that I know, I don't think, I know that that uh, plays a huge part in the kind of hospice nurse you chose to be. Um, mm-hmm. There's also this other part of you, and we're going to, we're going to talk more about what it is about hospice that, that, uh, lights you up so much but mm-hmm. one of the things that we uh as a family we often tease you about is that when you come to fly out to see us we can usually expect that you'll get off the plane and tell us about two or three people's life stories <laughs> <laughs> people you met and you sat next to and you know their names and their grandkids names and you know whatever other information and you have their whole story by the time that that you leave that short little experience with them and it's just who you are to gather story from other people, to understand their life and to hear their life, um, that it doesn't surprise me that hospice care is more than nursing yeah. um, oh. in, in the clinical sense. It is. I used to tell people I was a social worker. Pre- I was a nurse pretending to. No, I was a social worker pretending to be a nurse, but I wasn't a nurse at all. I was a social worker. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, but you did bring something to the table in hospice care that isn't often found. And there's there's two two things here. One, um, you know, I have uh, I have friends who are nurses in other areas of uh, nursing care, ER, different different right. avenues. Um, hospice nursing is not for everyone, and someone usually knows that is not for me or it is absolutely for me. There's not mm-hmm. a whole lot of gray area when you talk to nurses about how they feel about working in hospice. Yes, absolutely. And, and you actually feel the same way, but just the kind of the opposite direction. You yeah. never wanted to work in ER. You didn't want to work in clinic settings. You didn't want to work right. in the hospital in that sense. And um, so this was a very specific like calling for you or a mm-hmm. Um, a pull for you to be part of hospice care specifically. Um, The other part to that is um, that you cared so much, particularly I remember in the Alzheimer's units, that about the environment in which your patients were experiencing that that went a little bit above and beyond the normal care that was paid, that was, supplied by a care center. So you were very, it was very important to you that their environment um, was one that they could heal in. Yes. Um, Or have as full a life in that period of time as they could possibly have while Mm -hmm. in that space. Um, So those being that those were two very important things to you, Um, you coming to work each day was not about a clock in clock out experience. It was truly about a life mission for you. Yeah. So what is it that makes you one of those nurses that says, I want to work in hospice, please hire me in hospice. I'm going to send you a letter every week and tell you, I want to be hired in hospice. What makes you that kind of person? What is it that you love about it? Um, it's, it's everything, but I guess it always would amaze me that I could meet somebody that was maybe born in New York City, and here I was born in Flint, Michigan, and then here we are in California, and we meet, and we meet at this point when they're they're leaving life, and it's it's just like this miracle that we get to be together to walk through this and to walk through it with a family. Um, I, the first hospice house, her first hospice um, facility I worked in, um, they said their little motto was the promise of comfort. And I thought, that's it. That's my mantra, the promise of comfort. I can't, I can't heal you. I can't make you live longer. Um, I can't change anything, but I can promise you comfort. And I absolutely could. So comforting people was, it wasn't just medicine that comforted people. I found even with my Alzheimer's people that my massage therapy came in handy because I could calm them down when they were getting, you know, edgy and restless and, Mm -hmm. or even panicking, just doing their shoulders or doing their hands, they would just calm down. Um, In our hospice unit in Scottsdale, Arizona, we had this, we just had other tools. We had a, a fountain in their room. We had a journal so the families could write in the journal. We had, we, we just, pampered people and um but it wasn't just just, the patients 
No, in fact, the patient also eventually becomes incidental because there's a certain progress in their in their passing, but the families all have different scenarios and different things they're bringing to this room that the person is in. And so for a little bit, you get to be part of that and um, help people navigate. Um, but it also stirs me. Um, it stirred me every single time. And I, I think I could remember every patient I've had while there's been hundreds. I mean, some in the hospice unit, there were a lot, that's where they came in California, the hospice units where they came to pass. So somebody asked me one day, how many people do you see die in a day? And I said, it can be anywhere from three to five, sometimes seven. So you work three 12 hour shifts in a week and you kind of add that up through the year. That's a lot of people that mm -hmm. you see pass and, and each one has emotional connection. So and I think that's I one it. of the reasons that many people don't like to work in hospice Yeah, is because of that reason, but it didn't seem to affect you that way. It seemed from the outside looking in that it was like you walked away from each one of those passings as a privilege to be a part of. Yeah. 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 And it, it absolutely was. I mean, that's death is like huge. It's so final, and it's so uh, it, there's there's a whole trail to it. There's a whole progress in it that's unique to everyone, but yet the same. Sort of like having babies. It's everyone goes through the same thing, but it affects everyone differently. And I just, um, I, I just so maybe your. There's a birth doula and you're a bit of a death doula in a very yeah. positive sense that you're a, um, someone who helps them move through that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very gratifying. So one thing that you started doing, um, well, the first thing you started doing is you started sharing with all of us some of these stories that you were experiencing as people um, and their families um, came through the hospice um, centers. And um, and some of them were, uh, you know, extremely inspirational. Um, I think you, you uh, cared for someone who had been a rocket. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that was in the Alzheimer's unit. Oh, okay. I had gone to the pa patient's par parents, to their families, and asked in personal information about them that they would want shared, then made books for their room so that each aide that came in can look. Because some, she, this lady was a rockette, and, um, but nobody knew it. She was just an old lady and the nurse in the Alzheimer's unit. Another lady was an author and a radio uh, commentator and nobody knew it. So I thought if they, if the, our workers, if our staff could see them as real people and yeah, she was, <laughs> she was a rocket. One lady danced for the USO. That's just. Wow. Yeah. So you got to touch spaces of history with them as well you know to enter into yeah to their life um 
that wasn't just existing there in the ho- in the center or the hospice. Mm-hmm. Um, you you decided at one point um, that you you had a personal need, and then you saw a need come out of the hospice um, caring, and one was that families needed help walking through this that they needed guidance and to know what to do. Everything from, is it time to put um, my loved one in hospice care? Um, Does that mean I'm just immediately consenting to them dying? Or what does hospice actually mean? That was something that you were very attentive about. Um, The other was that these stories were becoming so um, important to you that they didn't, they weren't lost um, somewhere. And so what you started doing was putting these stories together in a way that um, satisfied holding on to them, treasuring the stories that had been told to you along the way, and also being able to have something that families could find healing in, um, not just for that particular loved one who whose story was told, but also for people who needed to see the humanity behind uh, mm-hmm. the dying process, right? And, and you decided to put it together in a book. Well, there was two reasons for that. One was I was just going to make little spiral notebooks of the stories so my family could have them. Because I just thought I would love to read about one of my old grandmas and what she did and what motivated her, what her passion was, because it was my passion. But the other thing was um, I, I had a stroke um, probably that was in 2015, I think. Anyway, I, I thought I wanted to know that I could still think. And so I started writing and I thought, even though I can't always get the words out, I'm still a writer and I could still write these stories. And eventually, you know, all parts of that pretty, I still struggle, but they're, they're pretty much healed. So you felt the need to, uh, to write these stories and yeah. in a more permanent well and space. I, because of the stroke I realized that my my life could be short the next stroke could take me out and so I wanted to get these into something that was safe and kept them together and then someone suggested a book and then um, I had a really close friend Carrie help me put it together mm-hmm. um, and and there it went and it's it's been wonderful and now that I'm retired it's something sometimes when I forget you know as we do sometimes when we go through hard spaces you forget who you are I'll mm. open up my book and read it and I go oh, there I am that's mm. that's me so it's it's good for me too I was talking with another friend who will be a guest on this podcast as well who we talk about writing and what it how it uh, how it's the voice of the soul that we often um, aren't even sure what it is that's in there until we start to write it, right? And I think writing was something you and I had done as long as I can remember um, as a way to form thought, as a way to process uh, process and communicate what was going Mm -hmm. on inside of us. Um, And I think as long as I could remember the thought of you uh, writing a book would have been like, this dream goal and you did it. Yeah. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was 
that when that finally happened, it was like, whoa. <laughs> well, it was interesting because I picked up the book again um, today um, to kind of look through it a little bit um, before we talked. And it hit me <laughs> for the first time. And I don't know why it hasn't struck me before, but it hit me that like you, the, the book is titled, They Healed Me. And then the subtitle, Stories, Conversations, and Connections, dot, 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 at the end of life. And I thought, mom, we're doing the same thing. You know, I'm doing it on a podcast. You did it in a book. But we are compelled to tell stories of mm-hmm. people's lives. And you have done it for, um, for what I think is often a lost voice. Um, we've, we've had many conversations about the day that you can no longer care for yourself. And we've all vowed as your children to not put you in a nursing home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but because you don't want to be forgotten and you've seen people be forgotten in these types of facilities. And, and so what you did is you offered space for them not to not be forgotten, um, for their stories to be, um, forever there. And I know their families have, have that, that they do as well, but you were somebody that just had them for a moment in time and, um, captured their essence in a page or two. So your book is filled, um, with a story after story of, um, of, uh, people that you, um, engaged within this care. And some of them, you even were able to get the families to release a photo. Um, so in some of them, you do have photos of um, of them. Lots of the pictures are hands because they're free to take. <laughs> you can get pictures of hands and put them in books, but you have to have permission for faces and, mm-hmm. um, and that's that thing. But I also gave, once the book was published, um, I gave each family a copy of um, so uh, who's in the book they, yeah mm-hmm. so there is uh there's one story in here that has always uh that I think it's the picture that goes along with it that's so profound um and it's 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 like a collection of short stories a page or two of each story um and this one is called her doll oh. <laughs> her baby quote lies safe in her arms She herself sleeps deeply, content. When she wakens, I tell her her baby is cute. Oh, thank you, she responds. Her name is Katrina. Such a beautiful name. How old is she? Her eyes appear to look back somewhere for the answer. Um, I believe she is two. Yes, two. Is she your baby? Are you her mother? Oh, yes, she emphatically proclaims. She was found in the dirt and they gave her to me. I am her mother now. You are taking good care of her and you even sleep with her. She smiles. Oh, yes, she is safe here. I love her. She is always with me. Drifting back into her place of slumber, she embraces Katrina ever more firmly, even as she sleeps. Her fingers and palms are tenderly and securely wrapped around her precious baby's head, head and legs. And while she sleeps, she is also tenderly held, tenderly and securely held in her father's protective love. His fingers and palms gently wrapped around her entire being. He is always with her. Perhaps this is the manner in which he is preparing his precious one for her homecoming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And I think that you understood the privilege of being in that space of moving people through those stages of the death process. Um, And I think that you could see them as humans, see them as a story that lived and breathed, that was still living and breathing all the way to the very end of that moment. That's a gift they were given by you. Yeah. It's, it's more profound to me now that I'm getting on the other side, the other end of life, because even in a grocery store or I don't know, Target or whatever, you're kind of, you, you older people are forgotten. It's people rush by, they, they do things. They don't, they don't know why you're not moving faster or why you can't do your transaction faster or, um, and you've, they've forgotten that this is a human being just slower than the rest of them. And it, and especially in a hospice setting or a hospital setting, you can feel forgotten because, Mm -hmm. and now these, these elderly people because of the virus that are inside of these places. Yeah. And I have a dear, dear friend and I can't go see her. She's 90 something. Her family can't see her. And I can't imagine because she's, right as ever but she's separated so yeah it's it's important it's important to all of us but we notice it more Mm -hmm. when we're incapacitated or older so why the title they healed me because um, the very first story in there is about it's in an alzheimer's unit and it's about a lady that um and it was my first experience with all of this but that Alzheimer's people tend to wake wake up in the middle of the night and they want to walk around and they do stuff. And she got a hold of everything that was in her brief, which is our word for um, their diapers. And it was spread everywhere and she was scared and it was on the walls. It was all over her. And um, she, I just remember taking hold of her and saying, it's okay. you're, I've got you, I'm holding you, and we're going to get you cleaned up, and as much as she could understand, and all the time talking, but also cleaning her up, and getting all of this off of her, and that's just where I was emotionally, spiritually, um, physically, I was down there, and it was, if God had given me this lady to tell me, you're going to be okay, and we're going to get cleaned up, and we're going to get washed up, and I'm holding you, and we're going to be okay. And that was, so I felt like these, in the beginning, especially these messages I got from these people were things that were being told to me through these people Mm -hmm. um, and gave me great comfort. My own mom and dad and sister in three-year increments died, and yet I felt like hospice was a comfort to me, that my job was always a comfort for going through those things. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and I think you taught us as well how to move through those processes of life with people. Um, mm-hmm. And not mm-hmm. just, uh, I mean, we went we went through those three, three specific deaths together, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, it's not always about death. It's just about, okay, this is the space you're in right now. Mm-hmm. We're going to hold this space for you and we're going to be right here in this mm-hmm. moment. 
and we're going to do what needs to be done here. Do you need um, a brief changed? Um, do you need a family member to come see you? You know, whatever it is, we're going we're going to do that need, right? It's. I think it has uh, profoundly taught all of us watching you live this life as a hospice nurse um, that every one of those uh, moments in our life, those often transitional moments are incredibly Mm -hmm. important. Um, You had this ability to be completely present in their moment. Um, (laughs) This is a, this is a stage in life where part of our coping skills says I check out here. Um, I'm just going to do the things that have to be done and uh, get to the other side of this because this hurts too much. Um, And for you. um, Well, Jenna was, Jenna was there, Jenna and Jake, when Papa was dying in my Mm -hmm. home. But I'll never forget when you guys, and this was new to do FaceTime at that time. Oh, yeah. You and the girls, um, there you were on this laptop computer we had singing, I think it was Amazing Grace to him. And he just had tears running down his face. But he he loved you all so much. And, and you just came and sat on his bed and sang to him. So um, it's, it's, I don't know, time stands still in those they do they do and and I think what you also offer is um the families an opportunity to have a very sacred time um Mm -hmm. to be able to sit in the pain and hold on to that moment um as that passing happens or to be with them if they weren't there um to help them handle you know that the news and the process um I think it's such a a gift um in the nursing field, that the people who are, or I should say should be involved in hospice work um, are these types of people. And I know that you haven't seen it always play out that way. It's not always, um, you know, the same care that you've given. You've seen it both ways, but um, but I think most. that, yeah, but you've ex- your experience has been that most people uh, in that work are are doing it because they want to be there. Yeah, it's really true. And if I walked into an ER, I would be probably too slow. I would be worried about, do they feel okay? Do they, do they have a blanket? Do they have... And, and they're, they're like, just in, saved their life already. <laughs> yeah, would you just get on with it? And those same people from the ER could come over to hospice and they want to, okay, find out what's wrong. Let's run labs. Let's do this. And you go, whoa they're dying. (laughs) We don't need labs. We don't need, you know, and so it's a whole another scenario, Mm -hmm. but usually people don't want to stay in the scenario they're (laughs) not supposed to be in. And yeah, those go-getters usually don't last really long in hospice. So you have also struggled now that you're not working as a nurse. Um, uh, You're you had such a passion in what you were doing. Um, you and I have had conversations about feeling a little lost without this uh, part of you um, existing. Yeah, and I'm I'm realizing I I used your journal that you you give away, and uh, that really started to open some things up in my not just my heart, but just kind of in a freedom way but to really look at what 
what's going on. And it starts with one thing and then suddenly you're writing about something else. But I think it, it just occurred to me yesterday. It really is about passion. And most things I've ever done have been with a lot of passion. And there's nothing like being on a team and being a part of something where we're all jumping in together to help this person get somewhere or feel some way or, and for that to be, I, I just have to find my niche again. And yeah, you know, because it's not time to stop living. It's just time to reinvent a little bit. Right. But I think people can, if they don't, if they don't tap in to what's my passion, like you, you ask in the um, journal, you know, what do you want? What are the barriers? Because you just kind of automatically go, well, it doesn't matter what I want. I'm this old. I've already lived life. But yeah, it does. It does. And um, in taking a look at what are my barriers? Why? First, the big thing is to even identify what your passion still is or might be. But then what are the barriers? And to try and Mm -hmm. identify those and start moving them. When I was having my babies and uh, trying to uh, train them up, (laughs) to guide them, to not touch hot things, to um, teach them how to live a life, um, one of the things that you always said to me was, um, just remember that boundaries breed their creativity. And oh, wow. So, I don't even remember saying that. <laughs> yeah. And um, and so it was as simple as, okay, we're going to place them in the playpen for some playpen time. And, or porta crib as we call it now. <laughs> Things <Yeah>. have changed. <laughs> um, and you give them a few toys in there. And it actually, the boundary is that these are the only toys they have. The boundary is that this is the only space they can move in for a little while but it often provokes um, a new level of creativity, that the boundary itself induces something new. And I wonder if that's just a principle that we carry all the time. I've thought about it a lot during the COVID and shelter in, that we have a lot of restrictions around us now that are really uncomfortable. Um, Some of us are like, yes, bring it on. And others are like, what have you done to me? I don't know how to live. This isn't working. And I keep coming back to this idea that as our circumstances change, we get new hurdles. We mm. get new things that say, oh, wait, you can't do that. Uh, whether it's age or it's uh, brain surgery or it's um, you yeah. know, uh, COVID or some kind of life circumstance that changes the game for us in a way or a loss of a job. Casey's in that position right now with you know, what's next after losing his job through COVID. So um, it it's it's like this, that boundary becomes this pressure system for us to figure out what is it I actually like? What is it that makes me, me? I got to do that thing. And I may have, it may look different than the way I did it before, but what is it that I can do with all of this that makes me, me um, for the next chapter of the story. And I think that's exactly where you're at. It's the next chapter. What does it look like? 
taking all those beautiful things that you, that hospice taught you about yourself. And I know you have many more stories than just this hospice work, but this one was one that profoundly um, offered you an opportunity to engage all of your giftings and serve and help people in the way that you felt so much life in. Identifying what those things are and finding how it fits into a new container. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what's going to be exciting for you in this next chapter. Well, I've watched you do that after brain surgery. To you, This metamorphosis that took over in you is just... <laughs> and I don't think I've really ever seen you, I want to say happier, but that's not the word, more content mm. than you are now. But So, yeah, that's... Uh, I have to look at that. Well, I think it's, I think it's what's exciting about all of this is that the stories we live matter. The stories that you shared in your book mattered to you and you know, they mattered to them. Um, The stories we keep uh, writing about ourselves matter. You and I are going through uh, Michelle Obama's uh, journal um, of writing down pieces of our stories from you know, are growing up to all the way through life. And there's just these little spaces where we get to kind of lay down some of that. And, and I find that, I go, oh, I forgot about that in my life. I forgot about that thing I liked as a kid. Oh yeah. I like to make up dances in my living room. What happened to that? You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, just getting in touch with those spaces of us that. And um, your journal asks those questions. I mean, those things yeah. came up in your journal so little. <laughs> and yet <laughs> and yet so much is accomplished through looking back on that. And it it it, it is, it's a puzzle and there are these pieces and it it still all fits. It just yeah. doesn't feel like it at times, you know. Well, and you and I have talked about how along the way we often get introduced to players in the story, characters in the story that often want to redirect us or change how we view ourselves or how we um, Mm -hmm. engage Mm -hmm. with life. And, um, and I think that's the piece that's always the most difficult isn't actually chasing after what it is that we want, but giving ourselves the freedom to say, no, I actually do want that. Um, When it seems like a ridiculous notion to go to school to be a nurse at 50 plus years, you did it anyway. You know, like, who, who does that mom? Well, I also had parents my whole life that would, that let me believe that I could do anything I wanted to do. So at this crossroads in my life, my mom called me every single day, or I called her after school, after the nursing school, she wanted to know everything. And my dad is the one who, like I said, he helped me get the job. He was going to, you know, we'll try this, we'll try that. And they weren't thinking, what does she think she's doing? They were like, rah, rah, (laughs) go for it. So I was um, pretty blessed to have parents who believed in me because I didn't think twice about it. I just did it. One thing rolled into another. (laughs) It wasn't like, should I? It was like, where's the door to the school? Well, and that, that truly is my experience with my grandparents was they just believed I could do anything. 
there just wasn't this thought of there being a boundary or a speed bump or, mm-hmm. or anything. If you wanted it, you just, you just did the things to get there. And, um, and I think you do that for my girls as well. You're like, you're so intuitive to what it is they care about in life, what it is that makes them tick, what makes them excited, what makes them light up and you get behind it. And, um, it doesn't even matter if it's something you do or don't understand. I mean, Sydney went down this whole journey of learning Japanese and going to Japan and submerging herself in the culture, um, in all of its customs and everything. And instead of you going, oh, good job, Sydney, you decided to try and figure out how to to. What what do you what do you like? You were you were buying her things that were culturally trendy for um, the things that she was interested in. Her, um, you know, Those K-pop Korean guys, the yeah. K-pop <laughs> bands, and um, you were just so intuitive to all of those spaces in there that you were going to learn what it is that she loved and be her biggest cheerleader in it. And you've done that with both the girls, with all of the grandkids, and. Um, and, and that's what I, what I see in your book is what, that's what you did for those you cared for in hospice. And that allows people to claim back their humanity, their dignity, their hope, their future, even if it's only a couple of days, but they get to be present right then and be alive right then. Yeah. That's That's such a gift. That's a big part of it, though. It's just, come on. Mm -hmm. There's um, the founder of um, hospice in the United States had this saying, she would say, uh, it's written all over anything hospice. It says, your life matters till the last breath you take. And your granny, my mom, was laying on this bed in hospice, um, incoherent. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking you know, what is the purpose here? And then her grandsons come in and they've both had trouble with gangs and Mm -hmm. prison and stuff, laying over her bed, crying, um, telling them, telling her how much they love her, um, repenting, so to speak, of their lives. And and I thought, she's still doing it. She's still, (laughs) you know, having an effect on their lives. And and until she died, and she's but she does afterwards too. Oh, she she's does. one of those rare ones. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for the work that you've chosen to do in all of these lives, all of these stories that are in this book. Um, but also for the work that you've chosen to do in your children and in your grandchildren and now great grandchildren's no. lives, because it matters, Mom. It absolutely matters. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. I'm going to put, um, information out on how people can connect with your book. Um, because I think it's one that even if you don't think it's a space in your life that you need right now, um, it is a space in our life that we will eventually need. And, um, it reminds me of, um, the, uh, what was it? Is it Honey? The um, the stories, uh, the New York stories. They come out in pictures. It's a it's more of a website. I can't even, it, for some Something reason. Something in New York. I know. 
Um, but anyway, where uh, random stories are taken off of the street, people that they run into, picture taken yeah. and stories told, it reminds me of that and um, that this is the the stories of uh, of people that we often don't tell the stories of. They're not walking our streets right now, and they're um, but they. Um, but you've given them value and you've given them dignity in this book. And something else that goes along with that, it's on Facebook right now is view from my window. And it's, it really is global because you can tune into it. Uh, and some, somebody's window view comes in and it's could be Bulgaria or anywhere. And you see where they're living, but they're living the same. We're all living the same because of a virus and, it connects us all to know that and to hear from each other, you know, their stories. And I, are- and I remember now it's uh, Humans of New York. And, yes. um, and I, I remember us having this conversation when you were working on your book that, you know, this is the humans of hospice. This is, this is what you yes. chose to do. It's very similar in, um, in passion as, as that project was. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to put that information out for people, but I just want to say thanks for sharing um, your life passion with us on the podcast. And as I know how many chapters of story you have in your life, I'm sure we will be back here again telling a different story. <laughs> Maybe at age 80, I will have in a decade of something. No, you'll have, you might have forgotten your stories by then, so we'll get you on sooner. <laughs> I know every one of those people in that book. By the way, the second half of the book is a lot of de- the deaths in our family. So, mm, yeah. So they're very personal. Yeah. yeah. So they're very personal um, too. So, but. All right. Well, thank you, honey, for inviting me. That's like a real honor, privilege. And I'm so glad for what you <laughs> Well, thanks you're for doing. being part of my project. It's yeah. fun to have my, uh, my family world cross over into this uh, project world. So. Yeah. And my. Yeah my work world crossed over. I didn't know that you remembered so much about (laughs) my job. (laughs) Of course I do. (laughs) Okay. Well, until next time. Thanks mom. Okay. I love you, honey. Love you. Thank you for listening and may you keep connecting all the beautiful parts of you.